Welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast, a podcast where we aim to arm you with non-obvious yet effective ways to design and create solutions to improve diversity and inclusion in your company. I'm your host, Petar Wioshevich. Today our guest is Connor Clark Lynn, co-founder of Disruptive Outcomes. Disruptive Outcomes provides socially impactful and outcome-focused research and consulting solutions. Disruptive Outcomes was started as an experiment to build a more empathetic, people-first recruitment and consulting business model. Their services include recruitment, outplacement, hiring of interim people, and investigation of data through primary and secondary research and the improvement of internal systems and processes. Beyond their for-profit work, they also provide discounted and free support for nonprofits, socially impactful startups, and people. They also commit 20% of their own time and resources to their own social impact programs. Connor, welcome to the Slightly Evil Podcast. Great to be here. Um, We have a lot to learn about and from you, so let's just dive straight in with the first question. We often find that people who actively work to improve work conditions and create more people-inclusive organizations have a personal story that prompted them to become more engaged. For our listeners out there, what is your personal connection to creating people-first organizations? Sure, um, it's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll be honest that I don't really think there's one single event that that changed my mindset. I think. It was really just a long process of of becoming increasingly uncomfortable with a lot of the failures that I was seeing in the companies that I was advising with or the actual companies that I was working with in terms of just um, very obvious kind of structural discrimination that wasn't being addressed and kind of superficial um non-discrimination policies that were not really implemented and then obviously seeing the downstream failures. So I think at the beginning, like everyone, I was quite um, blissfully ignorant (laughs) and kind of believed the narrative in a lot of the organizations I was working with. Um, But over time, I kind of saw those structural failures and I began to question more of the dynamics that I was seeing play out within corporates where no matter what was said, people largely just ended up hiring people like themselves, people that they were emotionally comfortable with. And a lot of that obviously creates a lot of friction with things like trying to implement more equal opportunity employment practices and all that kind of stuff. Um, And then I guess the final tipping point for me was um, I was fired from my last organization and I kind of had a choice between joining another organization and kind of going through the same process again or experimenting with whether I could build a consulting model and a business model that was I guess a little bit more empathetic (laughs) and a little bit more people-centric and see if I could address those issues that I was increasingly uncomfortable with. Now, you mentioned this a couple of times, structural issues that you were repeatedly being confronted with. What are some of these structural issues that you you see and saw at these companies? I guess I can give two very clear examples. 
Um, one is when organizations hire people based on culture fit, because this is actually a pet peeve of mine. Um, a lot of times organizations will will include a cultural assessment or a culture fit assessment as part of a screening process in their organization. Um, but it almost becomes a de facto discriminatory hiring practice or excuse for discriminatory hiring because inherently people who are different than yourself will make you uncomfortable. And when you're given a, a structural excuse by the organization to disqualify people for culture fit, you will end up feeling that because those people made you uncomfortable, they must not fit the company culture. And then it just becomes basically something that feeds itself over and over again. And superficially, the organization will say, we're an equal opportunity employer, we're progressive, we do not discriminate based on race, gender, et cetera, et cetera. But internally, managers are given full reign to blatantly discriminate against applicants simply by saying that they're uncomfortable with those applicants. And, and I feel that's inherently an organizational structural failing because the organization is is allowing that kind of thing to happen and, and in some cases I think actively encouraging it to happen. Another example of this I think even you guys have have talked a lot about is just the way that we structure job requirements and job descriptions. Like a lot of what goes into creating job requirements is inherently structurally discriminatory, <laughs> like deciding that we only want to hire people from certain universities or deciding that we only want to hire people with very specific years of experience um, inherently means that you will not hire certain groups of people because those people will not be representative in that sample that you're limiting your search to. And so those are the things that I guess more immediately come to mind as, as structural failures that I see very prevalent within the industry. Picking up on what you said about this internal culture that almost encourages this type of behavior. Now you are based in, in Singapore and um, you work with throughout the region and this is a very international region with Singapore being a, a hub for a lot of companies. Mm. Is there a difference in your experience between international companies and how their local subsidiaries act and, and local companies? Is there a difference in culture and how things play out around these issues? I Yes and no. I think it's it's one of those things where there's there's probably two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand local companies in Singapore, and probably at least twenty or thirty thousand, if not more, international companies in Singapore. And so it'll be very difficult to just give an absolute broad brush approach. Um, one thing that I do see more commonly, I, I guess one thing that you could say kind of generically is that international companies tend to have an expectation of conformity to the holding group culture. So for example, uh, 
a Japanese company operating in Singapore will tend to hire people who are more conformist to tendencies and communication styles that are prevalent within the Japanese company. Um, similar to an American company, similar to a French, a French company or Canadian company or a German company, there, there's kind of that tendency for those companies to select people who communicate in a way that they're comfortable with or behave in a way that they're comfortable with. Um, local companies, you tend to see a pretty wide spectrum. There's definitely that element of preference, local companies having a preference for people who communicate and behave within a, a structural context that's, that's familiar within Singapore. But it tends to be more nuanced because Singapore has done a pretty good job of heavily enforcing um, respect for, for racial, cultural, and religion diversity over the history of the country. So sometimes I find that local companies can be a little bit more regionally empathetic and culturally empathetic um, than international companies. But again, that's it's really hard to make that generalization because I've worked with international companies that do an exceptional job and have have become much better and much more inclusive on a local basis. I've also worked with local companies that only want to hire Singaporean Chinese people. Um, and they have that same kind of paradigm of anyone else makes us uncomfortable. And so I think that's why I almost feel like it's sometimes not so much a international company specific structural failure, but I think it's maybe just a human blind spot or something that we as humanity have to get better at accepting that people different than us will make us uncomfortable. And so how do we get away from using things like culture fit and emotional comfort or reactionary comfort to someone as screening metrics. Now, so the obvious question is, how do we get away from that? Like, what are some <laughs> of the things that, that without, you know, giving the store away for free, because people can, you know, contact you if they want to find out more, but what are some of the things that, that you, generally speaking, tend to speak about with HR departments when these issues come up? Sure, I, I think um, you, you guys, again, I, Kind of feel like this discussion's in a way becoming like promotion of of my consulting business and promotion of gap jumpers approach to <laughs> diversity um but i think putting that aside i think it's pretty well documented and pretty well established that um the best way to address unconscious bias or structural bias within an organization is to remove human decision-making as far as possible. And so basically try to get candidates as far along in the process as possible, validate their experience and their expertise and their credibility as far as possible before you put them in front of people. Because there's a very big difference to meeting someone who basically you've been told is been fully vetted and will be a strong hire for the position 
and please have a discussion with them and and make sure you're you're um, able to work with this person and bringing someone in and saying hey this is the first cut um, let us know if you like them or not and if you like them we'll progress them if you don't like them you can just let them go and so I a lot of what I talk with clients about is how do we design um, simulated work environment assessments as part of a screening process so that we, we basically have an Im as much as we can impartial data about how that person will potentially perform on the job. Um, and we use that as a screening criteria rather than kind of pet interview questions or um, hypothetical scenarios, which oftentimes interviewers are looking for specific answers to or are looking to see a certain type of answer. Um, which isn't really what we want to assess people on. We actually, when we think about it, we want to assess whether that person will be successful on the job in the long term, not whether they answer my trip to the moon will take how many pencils question in the way that I like it. Now I'm just going to have a small follow-up question on this topic before we move on to something else and, and challenge you a little bit you know you said this this hmm. might turn out to be a promotion of you know both our respective businesses but <laughs> if, if if that was the case and it was you know um, what we do was so well established then then obviously we would both be as big as facebook and and that's <laughs> not yet the case so it seems that there even though there is a lot of evidence as to why and how people could do better it's not always adopted what do you think is one of the main reasons why a a obvious and data backed way of doing better is not always as widely spread adopted? I, I think because it, to me, I see the biggest problem with adoption of, of database decision-making or just more pragmatic or evidence-based implementations has really two things. Um, one is it's, it's really uncomfortable um, and two, it admits it requires admitting that what you've done so far is probably wrong or has had negative repercussions. And I can speak from this because it's something that I myself went through in terms of building previous teams and over time coming to this realization that I'd actually probably been, well, I actually had been hiring people completely wrong and developing people in the wrong way and likely had excluded people from processes that shouldn't have been excluded um, because of various factors. And I think for especially larger organizations, the ability for the organization to come forward and admit that their hiring practices until date have been discriminatory or exclusionary um, is incredibly difficult. I think it's much easier for an organization to say, oh, we're enhancing our hiring practice by putting disclaimers on our website that says we're an equal opportunity employer, um, we're running 
unconscious bias training programs to make people better at uncovering unconscious bias. Um, I think those are very easy things for a corporate to do where they don't really have to admit that um, they've done anything wrong in the past. Whereas actually implementing a database decision-making process requires structurally changing how they evaluate and screen people. And that means you have to admit that what you've been doing so far has been wrong. Um, another, on the uncomfortable side, a great example of this is um, discussions that I had in one of my previous organizations where I wanted to switch um, the hiring practice so that managers would be the last person, line managers would be the last person to meet um, prospective candidates. And they would only meet that person after they had gone through various assessments. And in order for that manager to refuse that person, they would have to justify um, why that person functionally could not do the job because the assessment would basically the idea was that the assessment would have proven that that person had the capability to do the job. Um, and the biggest pushback that I got from, from managers and the eventual refusal of the organization to roll out the program was that, oh, well, then I won't have control over who I hire and I'm not comfortable with that. And, but to me, that's, that's kind of fundamental. Like if, if you want to eliminate barriers to entry, you have to be willing to accept the fact that your role as a manager is to make sure that the people who have the right skills and the right interest and the right attitude are successful in that job. Um, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't allow yourself that discretion to pick and choose who you like the most. Um, or who makes you the most comfortable. But inherently doing that is inherently uncomfortable. And I think in most organizations, that combined with the inherent requirement to admit that what you've done before has probably been discriminatory on some level or exclusionary on some level is close to impossible or very, very difficult for an organization to do. Speaking of wanting to maintain control or having perhaps sometimes trouble relinquishing a little bit of control, as we move to our, our next subject, um, this might be a nice little bridge. We've noticed uh, in our work with companies in South America or in Europe who have global parent companies that a lot of their programs to remove barriers to entry and to create more inclusion are oftentimes driven by the priorities of headquarters which is a lot of the times located in the US and this can sometimes cause a little bit of friction how is the situation in in Singapore and Southeast Asia yeah that's that's a a great question and it's actually something I see probably a lot more recently than in the past because I think a lot of diversity and inclusion or um, inclusive hiring practices are starting to be 
rolled out across Asia. I, I think the, I guess, very bluntly answering, I think Western organizations do a very bad job of rolling out um, programs locally across Asia, um, largely for that reason. I mean, Asia is an incredibly diverse ecosystem of countries. Um, there's, depending on your definition, there's anywhere from 16 to 36 countries within Asia. Um, all of them have their own languages, all of them have their own cultural practices, and all of them have very different diversity and inclusion problems. Um, some of the countries are very concerned about gender parity. Some of the countries are more concerned about age. Um, some of them have problems with discrimination towards young people. Some of them have problems with discrimination against old people um, or older people. Um, some of them, it's disabilities and there's, there's a very diverse ecosystem of, of what is the dynamic in each market and what are the concerns and what are the problems that those those countries are facing and similarly how to confront those issues on a, a legal framework basis uh, a local company operating practice basis and a market a market dynamics basis is very different across each location. Yet, oftentimes we see that there will be a diversity program that's rolled out on a global basis and kind of pushed down that, okay, every staff has to attend this four-hour seminar um, on a web link or um, go through this, this third-party program that we'll be flying in to produce. And it largely ends up being treated as a, ch a checkbox by the people um, in the region because they don't really relate to it. The, the topic diversity inclusion is relevant to everyone, but because it lacks that localized empathy and perspective on what are those dynamics in the country and what is that country dealing with, um, it's, it completely falls apart. and. I think that's, to me, an unfortunate waste of resources that um, I'd hope with the resources that, that multinationals have, that they'd at least try to do better. <laughs> what are some of the, if we bring it down to a very local level, um, Singapore, for example, what are some of the diversity and inclusion issues that are important locally that might diverge from the more global narrative which focuses on gender and race? Singapore is a very interesting kind of paradigm because Singapore has actually done exceptionally well at managing um, kind of issues related to race relations, um, gender, and um, age in some respects as well and religion. So there's institutionalized, strictly enforced um, policies that, that basically mandate that you have to treat people fairly. And some people disagree with, with how those things are handled, but the end result is hard to argue against. Um, Singapore has an incredibly inclusive, incredibly empathetic society towards people who practice different religions. Um, people who 
who look differently and speak different languages. Um, I think it's one of the very few places in the world where you can see uh, a Buddhist temple, a mosque, and a, a Christian temple um, or church uh, right next to each other and have people like, you know, who support those religions and practice those religions um, sitting at a coffee shop all chatting about their different interpretations of, of how they see their religion. And it's not really seen as a diversive issue like it is in other places. Um, that said, Singapore does have issues that it's, it's dealing with. Um, one of the big challenges that it's dealing with is how to deal with um, senior professionals. So people over the age of 45, but especially people over the age of 65 who want to continue working and can contribute, but where the market has shifted and there simply aren't jobs and there aren't opportunities for those people. And there's, I think like many places, there is um, structural discrimination towards people who are more senior. There's a lot of reluctance um, for younger managers to hire people who are older. And like, if you walk along the streets in Singapore, um, the ministries in Singapore are doing quite a lot of kind of educational campaigns where they're, they're actively trying to engage people to consider the importance of age diversity um, within the workforce and, and promoting that and promoting skill retraining programs and things like that. Um, so it is, it's an interesting dynamic where I think you have some of the concerns of other places, but it's it's a very different ecosystem that they're struggling with. Now, if you had only one month to help companies in Singapore be more open to hiring more people over the age of 45 and taking out of the equation any resource constraints, what will be your plan I guess one of my pet projects or hypothetical things that I'd always wanted to do or would really like to do is um, something like a, a country mandated, a country level mandated rollout of, of the movie, The Intern, where basically the every company that was trying to hire people um, would be basically mandated to take on someone over the age of 45 or over the age of 65 um, to take on an internship role um, in some capacity in the organization. Because at least from my experience dealing with different businesses and different people, I feel like a big issue with a lot of these things is, is really the first, first mile issue. Um, if you can get organizations over that initial reluctance to bring someone a bit more senior in, just like on an individual level, a younger manager's reluctance to hire someone who's more senior than himself or herself. Um, if you can kind of forcibly put them in, in that environment and facilitate it and support it, um, they tend to become more comfortable with it. And so, yeah, if I had a month and there were no resource constraints and I could wave a wand, I would, in essence, I guess in a very friendly, well-implemented way, 
um, force every company hiring in Singapore to take on interns. In speaking to the the kind of plug or credit for the Singapore government, um, the Singapore government is working on a couple of different programs that do something similar to this, um, but the companies do opt into the process. So there's skill retraining, there's, uh, senior professional onboarding and incentive programs where the government and even uh, work work trial programs where the government heavily supports companies that are willing to hire senior people and heavily subsidizes it. Um, I think the biggest difference that I do is I just force <laughs> force all the companies to do it. <laughs> and hypothetically speaking, um, and this is where I need to confess my you know cultural ignorance. So perhaps you can help me as well understand. You mentioned a couple of times, you know, the fact that younger managers might have issues um, hiring somebody senior to be their employee or subordinate. It sounds to me like that is um, partly a a cultural issue, or is there more to it why there is that reluctance? I think it's cultural. I'll have to take a little adjacent here and say that one of the kind of personal views that I have is that there's no individual or I guess there's no regional cultural difference. Um, when you strip it down, we're all humans and it ends up just being kind of group dynamics and how people have, have been developed and the incentives that they've had in any given market. So you oftentimes see similar kind of traits or similar environments or similar cultural behaviors, if you want to use that word, across different locations all across the world. I think the dynamic that Singapore has whether you call it cultural or whether you call it um, situational, is that it, it's been a very quickly developing country. And a lot of times, any given industry hasn't had like 100 years of expertise building and acceptance of professional professional skill um, focus that you might find in, in older markets where younger managers have seen growing up in the organization, older people reporting to younger people, and that's kind of been institutionalized through the legacy in companies over multiple periods of time. As Singapore has basically been around for 50 plus years and has developed very, very, very quickly. Um, and so for pretty much everyone in every organization, they've never seen someone younger manage someone older. And it's, it's always been seniority based. It's always been that kind of, of organizational dynamic that they've witnessed. And so it's then, I think that additional, getting back to our earlier conversation, it's that, that struggle with this, I'm uncomfortable with this, it, maybe they won't fit our culture, maybe they won't fit the, the paradigm that we're part of. And so that becomes a, an escape um, from that, that dynamic. I think, to be honest, it probably like other locations within, or almost definitely like other locations, 
within 20 years, it'll probably become normal practice. So what we're seeing now is probably what was happening maybe if to use the United States as an example, maybe 30, 40 years ago in the United States, when you're just starting to see that level of, of age diversity in the workforce. Whereas probably before that time, um, seniority determined your management hierarchy. Final question on this topic, because again, this is a fascinating topic to me, and I think it's worth you know a separate podcast. Um, I want to just highlight, as far as you can tell, your experiences with the applicants or the people who are over 45 and want to get back into the workforce. Like you said, they also grew up in an era whereby where they were seen as you know seniors and hence they should be in positions of leadership. How did they get over that first mile hump, if you will? <laughs> um, to, to be completely honest, I think there is a percentage or there are a number of people um, who will never get over that hump. Like uh, we, our consultancy is, is a social enterprise and 20, 30% of our time is focused on pro bono work for unemployed professionals and trying to do intervention work and trying to find ways to get people back into employment. And I think there's a pretty almost equal split between people who are almost, well, I shouldn't say they're unhelpable, but they're probably in a situation where they need serious help. So they need a counselor, they need um, someone who can really help them work through their issues because they're in, they've gotten to a situation where they feel like um, they've reached the end. There's nothing, they, they can't get a job again. Um, they're only able to see themselves in a senior position and it's beneath them to do anything else. Um, I, I think that group is talked about a lot and is kind of held up as an example why it's very difficult to hire senior people. But I honestly feel that group is not is not a majority in any sense. It's, it's probably a, a minority in most situations. Probably the largest majority that I see is people who are trying to figure it out. So they're, they're kind of stuck. They would really prefer to have a job as senior as what they had before. They feel they have a lot to add value to and a lot of skills to contribute, but they just can't find a way to get into a job and they're not sure, is it a problem with themselves? Is it a problem with their skills? Is it a problem with, with something that they're doing? Um, are they talking to the wrong people? That kind of thing. And then I think the, the opposite side of the spectrum are people who are very motivated and they're very uh, assertive and they're very clear about where they can add value and they're the people who have already taken initiative to jump into skill retraining programs. Um, some of them start their own companies and or do advisory work and they're they're the you could say they're the people who don't need any help because they're already figuring things out. Um, and of course I I think everyone would hope that more people were like that um, but I think the majority of people kind of fit into that um, somewhat confused still want to contribute 
um, but stock <laughs> category, if you will. Now let's move on to you know our our more um, st- you know standard two um, points within the podcast. The first one is the the contrarian thoughts, and then we will end with some personal questions. Let's start with the first contrarian thought. What is a contrarian opinion that you hold about equality, diversity, and inclusion? Yeah, I'll have to preface this that I I have heard this view from other people, so I'm not sure how contrarian it is, but I do feel that it's contrarian to the general narrative. And that's that I feel companies spend much too much time trying to hire or find diversity rather than really invest in building it. Um, and what I mean by that is I've, I've seen a lot of companies that roll out incentive programs for finding um, more female candidates for specific roles or finding people with, with specific racial backgrounds or um, specific backgrounds that fit specific diversity targets that the business has set, yet they don't change any of the hiring requirements for those roles, where they could very easily build much more diverse um, talent pools within their organization by changing those requirements, looking in different places for the people that they want to hire, um, building requirements that by the nature of the requirement, the talent pool for that requirement is automatically more diverse. Um, and I think there's there's unfortunately quite a lot of diversity that is like, let's find the, pers- the token diverse person who went to the same university that everyone else went to, that happened to go through the same program that everyone else went through. And it's like, well, are you really hiring people diversely or are you just kind of finding more people who fit the same stereotype that your organization has always had what would your evil twin say about improving diversity and inclusion Uh, that's easy don't do anything it's not a problem (laughs) they don't call them evil for nothing um And the last of the contrarian uh, thought questions, what is a long-held professional belief in whatever capacity that you've changed and why did you change it? I think for me, I used to believe very strongly that that people were inherently like you were you. And if you were screwing up your job or you weren't doing things properly, Um, I was giving you clear instructions and you were not following those instructions, then it was basically your problem and you had to step up and fix it. And if that meant um, me sending you for training or me doing this or me doing that, then I was very supportive of that. But I never saw it as anything other than that person's individual problem. I think that was another one of those things that slowly over time, I felt that view was really great, but I had trouble finding evidence to support it. And so over time, I realized that actually the people who were successful around me or even myself, a lot of our success had been situational and structural. So 
we we had a good team of people that supported the work that we were doing we had good systems and processes in place um, that we worked well within um, we had support from our managers and our leadership and uh, also there's been a lot of research on this topic as well that obviously people's individual performance within a job is much more dependent on the surrounding structure of support than it is on their individual competency. And then I kind of realized that I wasn't really doing my job. <laughs> and that a lot of times my behavior and approach was probably helping people make those mistakes that I was blaming people for. And I held a lot more responsibility for their failures than at that time I was willing to admit. Was it difficult to to even out that dissonance that you were feeling as you were realizing this? I, I think it continues to be one of those things where you kind of look back and you kick yourself repeatedly, <laughs> where you go, you know, if only I'd known, I I probably would have, well, I would have treated people better and I, I, I could have not made as many mistakes as as i did yet at the same time i'm only here now because i made those mistakes and i once had a conversation with a, a manager that i had a pretty severe falling out with but when i was still on a good uh, good terms with him um i remember him telling me something that um you could tell a good manager by their body count so the more people that you hired and fired, the better manager you would be. Um, in, in retrospect, I, I think companies could do a lot more to ensure that kind of thing isn't necessary. Um, but unfortunately for, for myself and for the organizations that I worked in, that was, that was how I went through it. Yeah, it's one of those lessons of my life, I guess. <laughs> How do you set yourself up for daily success? I, I wake up in the morning. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. That will be a deal breaker <laughs> otherwise. How do you end your day, or how, particularly when it's been a quite a stressful one at work? Largely, I, I just go home and go to bed, but I, I can't say that that's the real answer because um, I have two young children. So no matter what, I, I go home on time or early, um, spend some time with my kids, um, put them to bed together with my wife, and then do the chores, clean the house, um, settle some work, uh, and, and go to bed. Um, for many years, I do journaling as well. So I write a short journal um, about what's happened during the day, and then I sleep. And you mentioned, of course, journaling perhaps being a way to deal with setbacks. Are there any other things that you do to stay motivated when you are experiencing setbacks in work or in life in general? I'm someone that I guess it's, it's the work that I do, but also one of my core mindsets is that people, other people are, are kind of the most precious resource of the world. And I think they're the most precious resource for me as well. So I think the key thing that has always helped me stay motivated and deal with setbacks or deal with problems is just talking to, uh, to other people. 
Um, at, at times in my career, I've read lots of books, um, but I always found the books, especially motivational or management style books, um, quite superficial in a lot of ways and, and repetitive. Whereas I found that if I met with very different people with very different sets of views um, regularly and just talked with them about what's happening with themselves, what's happening with me, um, that just through that discussion, I would feel better and get more perspective and get more insight into, into just myself and what's happening and that within a context of what, what's going on with other people. And lastly, um, you mentioned before that you know, the structure in which we work uh, is a lot of times very influential in how well we perform. If you look back on your career so far, um, what have been three moments or three people or that have been of um, environmental impact for you to reach the place where you are today? I think there's one, since you mentioned people, there's, there's one person that I, I studied with when I was studying in Japan. Um, he's a Taiwanese Canadian guy and um, we were having one conversation that I, early on in my career, because he ended up working in Singapore and early on we were having a conversation about something that was going on and he just looked at me and he said, no matter what decision you make, you can never make it again. So you shouldn't regret any decision that you make. Just live with it and learn from it. And that has always stuck with me. Maybe it was the timing. Maybe it was the way he, he said it. But that's probably one of the most influential statements of my working career, where it was just that that no-nonsense no view of, hey, you, you, you can't go back in time and change things based on what you learn, so why should you regret those decisions? Just learn from them, um, apologize for any negative repercussions that you sincerely believe in, and move forward and be better the next time. Um, and then, yeah, I think the other things would be just having a strong interest in listening and talking with people. And uh, I, I like finding solutions. Excellent. Thank you for that. And on that note, again, thank you for joining the Slightly Evil podcast. And thanks for having me. Uh, it was lots of fun talking around these topics. This podcast is brought to you by Gap Jumpers on a mission to eradicate workplace bias by 2025. If you fear that unconscious bias is harming your company, Gap Jumpers can help you design a program to eradicate it. To learn more, visit gapjumpers.me. If you've enjoyed listening to this conversation, do please share this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Slightly Evil Podcast.